Thank you for listening to Sermons from Stonehouse Church. Our current series is called Reshaped. Reshaped is a 13-week series walking through the book of Ephesians. Our scripture reading today comes from the book of Ephesians. We're in chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands, should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning once again. Happy Father's Day. We're glad you're here. Um, We recognize that uh, Father's Day for some is a joyous occasion, and for others it is maybe something of a difficult day. so whatever camp you fall into, just know that uh, we at Stonehouse, if it's hard for you, come alongside you and, and recognize that. And if it's joyous, uh, we come alongside you and celebrate that with you. Uh, and if anybody would like to, we do go out to lunch every week, uh, just a group of us from here. And you are more than welcome to join us if you would like to. So happy Father's Day. We're, we're happy you're with us. Um, I am going to blaze through a quick recap here uh, of Ephesians chapters 1 through 5 before we dive into the marriage conversation because uh, I think it is necessary because it sort of posits this thing as it is supposed to be. Uh, but before I do that, let me pray and then uh, we'll, we'll go there. Father, uh, what a joy it is to be able to intentionally come to you as Father. Uh, Thank you for doing what we could never do, for coming after us uh, orphans, Lord, if we were left to ourselves. We uh, willingly chose to reject you as God and as Lord, and you came to us obstinate children 
and you adopted us and you made us your own. Lord, such a truth is too wonderful for us. We often don't recognize it for what it is. And so, Lord, on this Father's Day, we thank you for being the only perfect Father because we know even earthly fathers that are great and lovely and wonderful and good uh, fall short. And it is Christ's work and Christ's work alone that uh, makes us whole. And so we thank you for that. And as we dive into the lofty topic of marriage this morning, I pray that you would open our ears to what you have to say to us, uh, that our cultural lenses would be taken off, so to speak, that we would hear from you, our God, what you have to say about marriage, and that you would speak through a poor, miserable sinner like myself, and that you would deliver your truth through me. You know I need your help, and you instruct sinners in the way, so we ask that you would do that this morning, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we've seen that the book of Ephesians is essentially split out into two parts. Chapters 1 through 3 are basically Paul exclaiming to us what God has accomplished on our behalf. He goes through a whole series of things that God, outside of our will, outside of our actions, outside of any efforts that we have put forward, has objectively and independently performed on our behalf. And he says some rather amazing things, and I'm just going to fire these off real quick. He says that in Christ, because of God's work, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, that God, in his grace, chose us before the foundations of the world to be holy and blameless before him, that he predestined us to adoption as sons, that he redeemed us according to his blood and forgave us of our trespasses. He made us alive when we were dead in our sins and our trespasses, and he abolished the dividing wall that existed between Jew and Gentile in order to make one new humanity for himself. This was and is all part of the plan that God had from the beginning of time to unite all things under Christ. That's chapters 1 through 3. God did this independently, he did not need you to do it. He performed it for you, regardless of how you felt about it. In his grace, he did these things for you. And then, in chapter 4, we see that Paul says, in light of this, because God has performed this list of things that I just fired off, therefore, walk in a manner that is worthy of that. Right? Because God in Christ has performed all these things for you, he has performed in your place. He has given you what you did not deserve. He has made you new. He has made you whole. Put off your old self and put on the new self. Walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling that God has given to you. He says your life now, because Christ has done this for you, should look different. You as the church ought to be unique. And you should increasingly seek to be so by God's grace And we see ourselves looking at uh, marriage in that lens. Paul, Paul's just being practical here. Because Christ has done this, this is the way your life ought to look. And then he says, because Christ has done this, here is marriage. And here are parents and children dynamics. 
and here are servants and masters. These are the way that these things should operate on earth in light of what Christ has done. So he, he moves to these authority structures. Uh, the one that we'll be talking about today is obviously marriage. Um, a couple weeks ago, I got uh, an MRI. Anybody ever had an MRI? Okay, several. They're not particularly pleasant, are they? Right, and so I knew it wasn't going to be super fun. Uh, I, I had an idea that they were going to put me in some tube that's like four inches bigger than the circumference of my body, and they, they say, like, don't move for 25 minutes, you know, even though you're in a glorified coffin. Don't move, don't freak out, sit still. We need you to not move for these pictures. And so I, I had an expectation Right? I knew that I was going to be asked to do that, and I knew upon going into that I was going to need to sort of be intentional about staying cool, and I didn't freak out, thankfully. There was one minor snag, though, during the operation, and that was uh, the procedure, rather, and, and that was that, the, to her credit, the technician gave me some earplugs, okay? And I put them in half-heartedly. I was like, oh, you know, they're just being precautionary, you know, overcautious. I'm probably going to hear some sounds, but it's not that big a deal. And so they're like half in, and uh, I go in the machine, and I'm, I'm sitting there, and then I didn't realize that blaring sirens would be attacking my brain for the next 25 minutes. So they, they're wah, 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 you know, it's like an alarm. Uh, terribly unpleasant, and so I'm like, oh, gosh, uh, this is not going to work for 25 minutes, you know. I'm a drummer, and it's hurting my ears, right? That's a problem. So I, I said, okay, can I readjust here? Um, so she brought me out, and I put the earplugs back in. So the siren was a little bit alarming to me. Why? Because I didn't expect it. So when she put me back into the machine, I knew that I was going to get blasted for 25 minutes, so when they went off from there, it wasn't that big a deal. What's, what am I trying to say? The expectation shaped my experience. I'll give you one little, one more anecdote, and then I'll tell you my point here. Uh, Kelly's usually home when I get home from work, right? So when I get off work and I walk in the door, I expect to see Kelly, generally. Now, if I walked in and she wasn't there, you know, you, you get that little sinking feeling like, oh, where's my spouse, who's always here and is not here right now? But if, on the other hand, she texted me and said, hey, I think I'll probably run to the store, and I walked in and Kelly wasn't there, would I be alarmed? No. Because I know she's probably at the store. She told me she was going to be. So my expectation shapes my experience, right? Why do I tell these stories? Why do I set this up? Because as a culture, you need to understand that we have an unrealistic expectation of marriage. The way that we as a culture look at marriage is what largely contrib contributes to the deterioration of it or our unhappiness in it, we tend to place, we lift marriage up to a place that it wasn't intended to be lifted up to. In our culture, the narrative is that personal happiness is the ultimate aim. Right? Our, our culture says that the ultimate life, the ideal life, the wonderful life, is found in you as an individual pursuing your ultimate happiness at whatever cost it takes. Is something in your way? Get it out of the way. Push it over. 
move it. You ought to be happy. And so we take things like career. We say your career should ultimately be there for your personal happiness. Or your family. Your family should ultimately be there for your personal happiness. Your friends should ultimately be there for your personal happiness. Your time should be used for your personal happiness. I don't mean to ruffle feathers here, but the church should ultimately be there for your personal happiness. And so it goes. We are a consumeristic people that see entities and jobs and relationships as means of making ourselves happy. Paul calls us to a different understanding of marriage. Paul says marriage is not here ultimately to make you happy. Now I want to be clear here. Is there anything wrong with happiness? No. Absolutely not. The Bible is actually adamant uh, about wanting you to be happy. God desires that you would be happy. Uh, I'll just go through a couple scriptures here. Um, you know, the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus starts with, blessed are the poor in spirit. And then he moves on, blessed are those who mourn. And he fires off this whole series of things that make people blessed. Or, or you look at Psalm 1 and it says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. You see this word blessed pop up over and over. You're probably looking at me saying, well, is that talking about happiness? Well, yeah, because when you look at the word blessed in the Bible, when it's talking about human beings, the best translation probably is happy. Blessed means happy or favored. So if you just plug that word in, happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, etc. The Bible is not opposed to your happiness. It is in favor of it. But it does make some qualifiers here. And it says that the pursuit of happiness as an ultimate aim is a fool's errand. Right? If you say, I want to be happy, and you make it your pursuit to pursue happiness in and of itself, it's a fool's errand. It says you will not find it. It will evade you. The Bible teaches that happiness is always a byproduct of something else. And so it's true with marriage. And so Paul lays out marriage in a, a far more profound way than we often think about it. His definition is way loftier. Uh, than, than the way that we often think about it. And, and the, the world has traditionally, in general, approached marriage in two ways. Okay, so there's, there's one way which we'll call maybe the traditional approach, and that is that marriage was a means of improving your economic status or your lot in life. So I don't know if anybody watches like Masterpiece Theater, PBS, you know, like Downton Abbey and such shows, I know, <laughs> I know she does. But you, what, what do you see in those? You see a lot of times the, the rich, the wealthy heiress or heir that falls in love with like, you know, the pauper, the, the chauffeur, the, the, the poor person without a name and, and it's this huge scandal and everybody in society is like, what are you doing, you know? You are, you're high up in society, you can't marry this person and so 
you see all the old family members always telling them, you know, oh, if you, if you married so-and-so, you would, you would achieve this, and you'd have this wealth, and you would have this political influence. And so traditional societies look at marriage like that. They say it's an opportunity for you to improve your lot in life. It's a practical move. It's, it's almost a business move to give yourself a leg up in society. We don't really have an issue with that in our society. I mean, there's a little bit of that. The term gold digger didn't come from nowhere, right? Uh, but primarily, we tend to look at, at, at marriage the other way. And that is uh, complete fulfillment. We look to marriage to do what marriage could never do. When, when looking for a spouse, we say, it has to be the right person. They've got to be the perfect one, right? And I was, I was reading this um, NPR article, a woman by the name of Esther Perel, or Perel, I'm not sure how you say it, did an interview, and, and while I disagree with a lot of what she said, she hits the nail on the head in this one. And she's, she's talking about relationship expectations in our time and place, and, and here's what she says, if you have that, David. Relationship expectations are at an all-time high. We want everything that we expected in traditional marriage in terms of companionship and economic support and family life and social status. And then we also want what the romantic marriage brought us, which was a sense of belonging and connection and intimacy and a best friend and a trusted confidant and a passionate lover. And then we now also want self-fulfillment in our relationships and we want to find a soulmate, a word that for most of history was reserved to God. So you see what we've done here is we have elevated relationships and marriage in particular to unattainable heights. So long as you look at marriage that way you will be grossly disappointed. But when we frame it properly according to the way that Paul has laid it out for us we will find that marriage is, is more mysterious more meaningful and beautiful than both the traditional approach or the modern approach. So, hope to cover three things this morning, if we have time. That is, first, Christian submission. Second, the calling of wives. And third, the calling of husbands. Okay, if we're going to do the text justice, we need to go to verse 21, which is sort of, it might seem a little random to you, because it's kind of outside of this whole marriage speak. Um, but keep in mind that uh, before the 1500s, these verse numbers didn't exist, and these little page breaks and that nice little new paragraph in your Bible didn't exist. So that was added after the fact. So this is really one big thought that Paul is moving forward with here. So in verse 21, we kind of see part of the key that unlocks uh, marriage. And if we ignore verse 21, we don't really get the full look of what what marriage is like. So, you know, it's, it's often said you want to interpret Scripture in light of other Scripture. Uh, and so that's what we aim to do here, both in the immediate context and as a whole. So verse 21, let me read it. Actually, you know what? I'm going to back up about halfway through 18 so that we have a little bit of context. Paul says, Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father and the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another 
out of reverence for Christ. So I know when you, when you read verse 22 here, the first thing that it says is, Wives, submit to your husbands. And uh, I'm, I'm well aware that that's a bit of a hot button in our culture. And we will get to that. Don't worry, I, I plan to deal with that extensively. But let's notice that Paul calls every Christian and every time and place to submit to one another. That's our foundation. Before marriage is a thing, before there are specific roles of husbands and wives in which the wife is to submit to the husband, there is a general Christian submission. What happens when you become a Christian? I'm not going to go through it exhaustively, but at least one thing that happens is you realize you're not really in charge. Right? You come to the end of yourself and you say, you know, I was my own master. I was my own Lord. I was deciding what was right for me. I was in charge. It was my life and I was the captain of the ship. And you realize your foolishness and you say, okay, Jesus, you are now in charge. You are Lord of my life. You are master. I am not able to do this. So before you, when you become a Christian, you submit your life to another. You submit your life to God. You are no longer in charge. And you say, Jesus, not take the wheel. Sorry. Um, Jesus, you are Lord, you are master. And I am not. You submit yourself to him. And so one of the things that happens is in our submission to God, we find that it's also easier to submit to one another because our world no longer revolves around us, right? It revolves around Jesus. If you are a Christian, you have sort of laid your arms down, so to speak, and said, I submit to another. It is not all about me. I am not in charge. And so Christians mutually share that submission to Jesus, and in that submission to Jesus, there is a submission to one another. Let's look at Philippians chapter 2. Starting in verse 2, he says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we are called to a mutual Christian submission in which we see Jesus as our head and we mutually submit to one another out of reverence for him. It's impossible to fulfill what Paul just told us to fulfill without some kind of submission to one another. The cross of Jesus Christ strips us of our self-importance and it opens us outward to one another. So in light of that, my life, your life is no longer defined in isolation, but is now defined by the community of believers that you've brought into, that you've come alongside, who have also been rescued by Jesus' blood. You give yourself over to these people. You allow them to encourage you, to challenge you, 
to remind you of God's grace. You join them in intentional lives of worship towards God. We're thankful alongside one another. This also means that we pursue God's grace in inviting people to say things to us that maybe we don't want to hear. Right? There's no way to say, brother, sister, I know that I'm a sinner. Tell me about my sin without submitting to them. And just so you're aware of this, early on in the series, Derek was showing a book written by Richard Koken. Uh, it's called Ephesians for You. It's great. We've kind of been using it as a resource throughout the series. Uh, and he does a great job. I do uh, disagree with him a little bit on this point because he takes verse 21, submitting to one another, and he says it's impossible and he says it only applies to the submission between wives and husbands, parents and children, masters and servants. But I hopefully just demonstrated that mutual submission is, is totally necessary among Christians. And I'll give you one more anecdote before I move on. Um, to demonstrate that I think the, uh, the submission is mutual and it is meant to be between all believers. Um, you're hanging out with a friend of yours, you know, you're walking into a restaurant or whatever. Somebody has to open the door, and somebody has to walk through it first, right? You guys hopefully don't awkwardly try to squeeze through the door at the same time together. Uh, so, so you may say, oh, you know, open the door after you, sir, after you, ma'am, right? Uh, you just submit it to them. Are you going to be the one to open the door every time you guys hang out for the rest of your lives? No, they're probably going to open the door next time. What happened? You guys just mutually submitted to one another, Right? I open the door for you sometimes, you open the door for me sometimes. That's the way it works. Uh, furthermore, mutual submission, I just, in terms of fulfilling commandments in the New Testament, I don't, I don't see it possible without the submission between other believers. And so I'll, I'll just rifle off four quick commands and then we'll move on to point two. Paul says, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more, fi more highly than he ought to think. And then he also says, give preference to one another. Outdo one another in showing honor and live in harmony with one another. The same mindedness that Paul's talking about in Philippians 2 does not work if two parties are moving in opposite directions. You cannot have the same mind if you say my way and the other person says my way. You go in opposite directions, right? But if you are pursuing same mindedness intentionally, there has to be some kind of submission, right? You have to say, I am going to intentionally move forward towards you and lower myself in that. So, before we look at marriage, if you're a Christian, you're called to submit. Period. It's, it's part of life for you now. And it's not a negative thing. It's a beautiful thing, right? Okay. Number two. Wives. I'm going to talk to you for a little bit. Verse 22, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. So this submission is an additional, specific, God-designed call for the woman in marriage. It does not nullify the previous Christian submission that we have to one another. It merely is tacked on top of that submission. But this is a specific submission according to God's designed to a woman's husband, right? It doesn't say to all men, 
Wives, submit to guys. That would be a disaster. Um, God has designed marriage and he has appointed this role for women. I realize that submit is probably not well received at all by our culture and maybe it's even not well received in this room. Right, I, th I think that one of the first things that we sort of reflexively go to when we hear the word submit is like inferiority. You know, like, oh, the wife has the lesser role in this thing. But I would submit to you, pun intended, that uh, the incorrect understanding of submission is what actually drives that thought. Okay, so... If we define submission in the way that I think it's generally perceived by people um, as the male chauvinist who has the opportunity to tell his wife to do whatever he wants her to do, whenever he wants her to do it, and however he would like her to do it, and he is self-important, self-righteous, and lords it over her, demands thing of, things of her, and she is required to do all of those and to fulfill all of his commands at, you know, any whim that he has. Then I stand alongside you and say, that is grotesque, I'm appalled at that, and it is not the biblical teaching on submission, okay? Women, wives, are not called to be doormats, okay? That's not what biblical submission means. We believe in the teaching of scripture that says, God created men and women both in the image of God. They are equal in dignity. They are equal in value. They both bear the image of God. Okay? So equal, right? Men, women, same spot. No hierarchy here when it comes to created worth, right? In marriage, we see, we see a role change, though. And even then, it's just different. Like if you think across a spectrum, here and here, it's not a hierarchical difference, right? It's same plane, just different, different roles. That's the way that we view submission. Um, so I, Kelly and I are watching this show called uh, Poldark. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's, it's, it's pretty good, but there's this character on there. His name is Osborne, and uh, one of the characters named George describes him as a reptile and a prig. <laughs> and George is not exactly a fan favorite either, so for him to say that, it, it, it means all, it, it carries all the more weight. Uh, but Osborne is abusive, he's self-important, he's boorish to his wife, and to make matters worse, he's a member of the clergy. And so his wife uh, has just had a baby. The doctor comes and the doctor says, six weeks before intimacy, right? Because having a baby is a lot of work and pretty crazy, right? And so he gives doctor's orders, you know, six weeks, no intimacy. No intimacy. Osborne goes to his wife and he has needs, right? You know, and, and he's a jerk and he goes to his wife and he says, okay, you know. And then he quotes this passage and he says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord and my blood is like boiling and I'm ready to throw a rock through our TV. That's not what the text means, okay? And this is why 
at Stonehouse, we take the interpretation of Scripture very seriously. It matters that we don't come with our preconceived notions for what the Bible teaches. It matters that we let it read us. It matters that we submit ourselves under it. Osborne did not do that. He was a self-important, self-righteous person who said, I will make the Bible mean what I want it to mean. It's never our goal. We always want to see what Scripture has to say and be prepared to be contradicted by it. Okay, so what does submission mean in this passage? What, is it, what does it look like? How does it flesh out? Well, it means that the wife, first of all, marriage is a parable. It is a picture of something bigger than, than you can see that, that Paul reveals later in the Scripture, which we'll talk about a little more. But it means that the wife is to take her cue from the church and the dynamic of Christ as head of the church and church as the people that Jesus Christ in his grace bought with his own blood. Okay, the wife takes the cue from the church in that metaphor and submits herself to the husband in the way that the church submits itself to Jesus. A wife's submission is a willful act of deference to her husband out of obedience to God. It's not a relinquishing of her rights. It is a willful act of deference to the husband out of obedience to God. John Piper puts it well. He says, Submission is an inclination of the will to say yes to the husband's leadership and a disposition of the spirit to support his initiatives. Okay, so God has given us a metaphor in marriage. Marriage is not just for your personal happiness. Marriage is to be a proclamation of something. And as the wife willingly and gladly submits to her husband, as the church submits to Christ, she is displaying the glory of God in what he has done for his people. And that role is not lesser than the man's, it is different. A few qualifiers. Note that Paul doesn't use the word obey here. But later when he talks about children and parents, the first thing he says is, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. The dynamic between husbands and wives is different than the dynamic between parents and children. I have a different authority over my son than I do over my wife, right? I don't just get my wife to obey me. It's not what it means. The wife is not to completely forfeit her will in this dynamic. She is merely to submit to him when things come to a head, so to speak. The husband has the final authority, but he does not have all authority. Okay? The wife submits to God, and in that submission to God, submits to the husband. The wife's submission to her husband is one that flows from her submission to God. Therefore, the wife has duties to God that influence her submission to her husband. The submission to her husband is sub subordinate to her submission to God. Okay, why do, why do I say that? Because there, there are some things that wives should not to submit, submit to their husbands in. Raise your hand if your husband's a sinner. <laughs> Come on. Everybody's hand should go up, right? I'm not... 
I am not uh, surprising you by saying that your husband is a sinner, right? Your husband will sin. Your husband has sinned against you. Your husband will sin against you again, I'm sorry to say. And in that, you should not submit to him in his sin in a way that either passively or actively enables him to continue in that sin, right? So we could use a, an extreme example real quick. If your husband is abusive, to enable an abusive husband is to reject the wife's duty to love her husband as a Christian brother. Because to allow him to continue in his abuse is to enable his heart to grow increasingly callous and hard and further unrooted in the gospel, right? The husband is sinning against the wife. For the wife to passively stand there and not say anything is for her to enable him to sin further. His heart will only grow harder. Perhaps the husband has a problem with spending money. He's reckless and his heart is utterly bound up in earthly treasures. In this case, it is right and good for the wife to say something to him. Why? Because Jesus calls us to love him, not money. If the husband looks to money as God rather than an object, it will destroy him. For the wife to remain passive in this is for her to shirk her duty to God by allowing her husband to be given over to money. Right? The dynamic in the marriage does not undo the Christian submission that we had talked about in verse 21, right? And as a sister in Christ, you are called to go to your brother and say, here's what I see, I love you. Now, there's a way that she should approach that. See, love is often confused with passivity. The reality of love is that it both challenges and submits but it knows when to do each. A loving wife challenges her husband's sin because to challenge him is to push him to be further conformed to the image of Christ, which is his highest good. When confronting him in his sin, though, the wife does so respectfully and submissively, not as the queen of the universe. Okay? Not as, dare I say the three-letter word, nag, Right? I, the wife might say something like this. I respect you and I'm willing to do X, Y, Z if you think it's best. But do you think maybe, maybe you've missed something here? Do you believe that your approach to this is bringing glory to God? Here's what I'm seeing as your wife. That's loving and submissive to your husband. The husband should then give serious ear to what his wife is saying. When it comes to decision making, the wife is not utterly removed from the process. That's not what the submission headship dynamic means. It merely means that the final call is the husband's if it gets to that. Let me give you an example. Let's say a husband is, is happy, unhappy rather, with, with his work and uh, he's been looking for work and, and he gets maybe a job offer in Virginia. Um, the husband as leader does not mean that he wakes up Thursday morning 
and tells his wife, hey, I got a job in Virginia. We're moving. Pack your stuff. Let's go. That's not leadership. Instead, what it might look like is, hey, here's what I'm thinking about. This is a direction I think maybe we could go in. What are your thoughts on that? So the husband and wife sit down. The wife gives her pros. The wife gives her cons. The husband gives his pros. The husband gives his cons. They talk about it. 20 minutes, 2 hours, 2 days, 2 weeks, whatever it is. And then at the end of the process, when everybody has laid their chips on the table, when everyone's voice has been heard, the husband says, we're going to go or we're going to stay. That's how it goes. There's conversation, there's fleshing it out, there's wrestling, there's respecting your wife's opinion as a woman made in the image of God who is probably wiser than you in a lot of ways. And you take that into account, but at the end of the day, somebody has to make a decision. Who's it going to be? Both people can't decide. It will not work that way. It's why you have a boss at work. Because somebody has to be the one to make the decision, even if it's the wrong decision. You know, and then that's, that's the other thing. The husband and wife dynamic doesn't mean the husband's going to get it right. It just means he's the one that has to do it. <laughs> so, goody husbands, you also get to be the one to bear the responsibility when everything goes awry. Okay, two more points and then we'll move on to the last one. The wife's call to submit is, is not based on gifting or disposition or capability, but on God's design. Right? So God did not look down into human history or, or even before he created humanity and say, I'm going to make woman this way. She's going to be better at this and the husband's going to be better at this. And so, because of their giftings, because of their natural propensities, I'm going to design marriage after their giftings. No, it's, it's, it's merely a design that God has. It's a call. It's not based on gifting. It's, it's based on his design. So you very well may find in your marriage that the wife is maybe a little more naturally, has a natural bent towards leading. And maybe the husband would rather submit. And in that case, hard as it may be, through time and the grace of God and prayer, I humbly submit to you that you ought to seek to make this work. You should bring your marriage under the design that God has for it because he made it and in submitting to his design, you will find your deepest joy and it will bring him the greatest glory. So what we're not saying is husbands are better leaders. That's why wives have to submit. No. What we're saying is God gave women a role. God gave men a role. If you're bad at it, it's grace all over the place. Work it out. Love each other. So one last thing. I'll move on. A note of encouragement to you, hopefully. I've, I've talked to enough women about this where I feel like there's a general consensus that a lot of times wives feel like they drew the short straw. Ah, I'm the submitter, you know. I wanted to be the leader. You know, it just feels lesser to me. Um, Jesus Christ is the only human being that ever lived a perfect and full life. 
He is literally the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. His life was utterly beautiful. He's the only one that did everything right. He loved God. He loved his neighbor. And God even looked down on Jesus and said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And yet Jesus Christ's life was full of submission. He submitted to the Father. He even submitted to sinners by hanging on a cross for them. His life was full of submission and it was complete. It was glorious, it was perfect, it was spotless. And so wives, you have a unique opportunity to portray this beauty in a way that husbands don't have. Your submission is glorious and beautiful in the way that Christ's submission was. God has given you the gift of being able to show your husband, your children, and the world the beauty of submission in a world that generally hates it. As Christ's bride, the church looks to Jesus and responds to him as a loving head. So you have the opportunity to portray the wonder of this relationship in the way that you submit to your husband according to God's design. It's a gift to live this out. It's a grace from God to be able to submit to your husband. Okay, number three, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Hopefully that reading of that brief part of Scripture just shattered any notion of this misogynistic, chauvinistic dynamic in which the husband stands there with his arms folded and proud and says, I get to tell my wife what to do. She's got to submit to me so I can lay on the couch and do absolutely nothing while I command her around the house. Now, the first thing that Paul says to husbands in their role of leadership as the person with the authority and the dynamic is love your wives. Husband, leader, love your wives. And then he goes a little further as far as you can possibly go, really, and says, as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. What does this mean? Jesus literally died for the church. That means, husbands, in your authority, you ought to be willing to both figuratively and literally, if it comes to that, die for your wife. This type of leadership is fueled by love. It is fueled by servanthood. It is fueled by lowliness. It is fueled by 
seeking to fulfill your wife's desires, her wants, her preferences. It is never putting yourself first. Did Jesus put himself first? No, he put himself dead last. That's our cue. That's the cue that the husband needs to take. That's how the husband leads. He's called to lead her, yes, but how? By loving her as Christ loved the church. This is a self-giving love, not a self-getting love. Consider self last. Considers the needs of the wife first. The husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. There's no greater love in all of the universe than Christ's love for his people. And that is the high bar that husbands are called to. He, Jesus went as far as he possibly could to love the church. What else could he give? You know? His life is the highest cost. It was the most that he could give up. Also that you and I could be adopted, could be made his. It was the most he could offer and he did it gladly and willingly. This is how husbands are to, to love their wives. They're to offer their life So what does this look like practically? If the husband is actually loving his wife as, as, as Christ loved the church, when he makes decisions, he understands that he's the one bearing the weight of it. But as I already said, he will get the wife's input. And to be honest, husbands, this is a weight that you have to bear. Leadership in marriage is not really that desirable. You are responsible for the health of your marriage, for the success of your marriage, for the thriving of your marriage. The way that your marriage goes, ultimately, of course, there are two parties involved, but ultimately, you are to take the leadership role in ensuring its health. That means in conflict, not always, but most of the time, you, husband, should be the one to lead the resolution of the conflict. That means as hard, as difficult, as annoying it is, even if it means that she sinned against me and I, she needs to be the one to apologize, it means the husband should be the one who lowers himself in the way that Christ lowered himself to sinners that hated him and say, I have nothing but grace to give you, should approach the wife tenderly in such a way that invites her repentance by his tenderness by his lowliness, by his humility. It should be so evident when he approaches the wife that he is just exuding a desire for her well-being and for her joy and that the repentance is not merely to make things right with him but because he wants to see the wife restored to Jesus in her repentance to him as a husband and therefore see the marriage thriving. This is not a thrilling task. It is a privilege, but it can also be a weight that you have to bear as a husband. It also means loving your wife practically. Being a leader means that you continually sac sacrifice your own preferences for the sake of your wife's. 
Does your husband have, uh, excuse me, does your wife have a favorite restaurant that you as a husband hate? <laughs> you better start liking the food. <laughs> Do you hate doing dishes? <laughs> your wife probably does too. <laughs> you should do them. And, and look, I'm not saying that this fleshes out the same way in every marriage. You know, you guys work it out. But look, this idea that comes from the 50s where we had this perfect housewife where the guy could just like go out with the boys and do his thing while the wife cooks dinner, keeps everything perfectly clean, does the laundry, changes diapers, so on and so forth. It's not in the Bible. Now, you guys work it out, you know. I'm not saying that the husband as leader should do all these chores because that's sacrificial leadership. No, sacrificial leadership is saying, I'm here, I'm willing to help, I want to serve you, I love you, and my call is to say, even if I would rather do laundry than dishes, if you would rather have it the other way around, that's the way we're going to do it. Leading your wife means meeting practical needs over and over. It means serving her. It means changing your schedule for her. It means letting your preferences die for the sake of her joy. This is biblical headship. Okay, the other thing that you're called to as a husband is spiritual leadership of your wife. Why did Jesus give himself up for the church? Yes, because that's the only way that God could forgive us of our sins. But the text tells us another reason, starting in verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. So, husband, God has called you to care deeply and be responsible for your wife's holiness. So, your wife's growth in Christ, that ball is in your court, men, husbands. The primary purpose of your sacrificial leadership, in fact, is to make your wife holy. Now, I'm not saying that this is possible apart from God's grace and the Holy Spirit in your wife, but as a husband, you are to be intentional about caring for your wife's spiritual livelihood and spiritual growth. Your wife's heart, just like every human heart, has things in it that are ugly. I already said that about husbands, that's why I can say that. We're sinners, right? Your wife has sin in her heart. Guess what? You've been ordained by God to address that sin in her heart, that you might make her holy and blameless in the way that Christ did for the church. Now, it's not in the ultimate sense. You can't die for your wife's sin. It's a metaphor. It's an analogy. And the way that Christ did it, by dispensing himself, by coming in lowliness and tenderness, he sought and is seeking the church's purity. If you are not lovingly confronting your wife's sin, you are not loving her. Because her temporary comfort is a hollow and fleeting pleasure. 
Her ultimate good is found not in short-term ease, but in growth in Christ-likeness. And in fact, your wife's happiness is ultimately found in her holiness, and it's your job to get her there. Now, there are a couple pitfalls that we as men, as husbands, can fall into uh, when shepherding, shepherding our wives in this way. One is the, the self-righteous approach. Full disclosure, this is how I tend to deal with it, right? I see a sin in my wife's heart, and maybe I'm a little too quick to point at it and to push on it. And maybe my motivations aren't totally pure, you know? Maybe I'm not grieved over her sin because she's seeing Christ less clearly as a result of it, but I'm putting myself in the center and saying, you're not doing what you're supposed to do. You're sinning. And so I come to her like a lawyer, and I say, Thursday at 4.22 p.m., following this, this, and this statement, you said this, and that was wrong. Get it together. You sinned, fix it. Figure it out. Go to Jesus. I'm going to be over here sulking, mad, not talking to you, running through this in my heart. That's not the approach that Jesus took. He approached the worst of the worst sinner continually with humility. He came alongside them, not over them. And so husbands, you should call your wife out, so to speak, on her sin. But you should do it in a way that recognizes your own sin and enables you to come from a place of humility. It should be so visible in your approach that your concern over her sin is ultimately coming from a place of your desire for her to see Jesus more clearly and therefore be more conformed to him. Okay, so we don't stand here as husbands and leaders saying, wrong, 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 you screwed this up. It's, you know, I'm, I'm just here to make you holy, babe. You know, and so I, I you know, I... I took the liberty of making this chart of your sin. <laughs> Take a look on it, go meditate. No. You need to make it easy for your wife to repent. And you do that from your knees. Okay, the other pitfall is, is just straight passivity. Because let's be honest, it's easy to do the self-righteous thing. It's really hard to do the call to repentance to your wife from your knees. It takes emotional effort. It takes personal repentance. You can't just flick the switch and make it happen. So a lot of times what we do as men is we just, I don't really want to deal with it. We take the hyper-passive approach and we just say, I'm just going to leave my wife's holiness on this back burner because, you know, maybe if I address it with her, it's not going to go that well. You know, maybe she's not going to want to hear it, and then guess what? We're going to have to talk for maybe an hour. And then even at the end of that hour, maybe it's not going to be resolved. So it's just better if I, you know, let her treat me like crap sometimes and, and not address it. It's easier. So we end up taking this passive approach. We don't address problems that need to be addressed. And I'm here to say your duty as a husband is to lovingly confront your wife in her sin even if she doesn't want to hear it, <laughs> right? Your job is to put it in such a way that makes it as easy as possible for her to hear it, but if you are passively 
enabling your wife in sin, so to speak, you are shirking your duty as a husband, as a leader. You are not doing what you're called to do. Jesus called you to make your wife holy, to take the easy approach of conflict avoidance, to keep the peace is disobedient to God. And it stems from a place of self-comfort. Ultimately, you'd rather be comfortable than see your wife grow. Not okay. All right. Last thing and then we'll close. So for wives and for husbands, what are the implications of this great mystery that marriage is? It means that your marriage matters, right? This is not just a placekeeper in your life until Jesus comes home. You know, to view marriage as, as something that you just merely need to get through until Christ comes back and, and takes us home is not the approach. It means that the moments in your marriage, tiny or humongous, are matters of eternal significance. Your marriage is not merely an arena for happiness or an institution that you wait out until Jesus returns. It's the, one of the grandest metaphors that God has given us to show us his love for us and his sacrifice on our behalf. It means that the, the small tift in the car on the way to dinner, the argument over how long the in-laws will stay, the push and pull and frustration over scheduling your lives, the tiny things that happen over and over that drive you crazy, the idiosyncrasies that your spouse still struggles with that you've addressed time and time again and they, they did it again, it means that you resolve these and how you resolve these matters eternally. These moments, these little vignettes are all tiny stages to be used to proclaim the enormous, unchanging love that God has for his people that is shown through giving his son for us. And so in your marriage, you have the opportunity to play that film, so to speak, over and over in the way that you deal with one another. I mean, how often do we normalize marriage? All the while, Paul's like, it's saying something. It's saying something grander than you could ever imagine. It is the most glorious metaphor in all the world. So, that's what all those little moments are for. They are for proclamation. Last thing, we're done. Every wife in this room has failed to submit to her husband as she ought to. She's either been embittered by his leadership or taken the leadership reins that were rightfully his or disrespected him or made him feel small or like a terrible leader. And every husband in this room has failed to lead his wife as he should. He's either lorded his role over her due to his own pride, or he has served himself over her, or he's lost his temper with her, or he's passively not pursued her highest good out of a desire for his own comfort. So I say to you, as husbands and wives, we're failures. And guess what? Jesus Christ, the righteous Son of God, died for failures. Are you not a failure? Then the sacrifice of Jesus is not for you. Okay? Jesus Christ died for the ungodly. I as a husband have failed. You as a wife have failed. Every week we do communion. There's a reason why. 
That is because it's, it's, it's a bit of a ceremony, really. We're saying, I need to remind myself that in all of my failure, there is a fountain of blood that cleanses me. And I can return to it over and over and over and over again. And its cleansing power will never run dry. So we take communion. The bread is a, a broken body in your place. The ultimate husband, Jesus Christ, gave his life and spilled his blood so that you might be whole again. Let's pray. Father, your goodness is beyond our comprehension. And so we ask that bit by bit you more fully reveal yourself to us. And that as we look at this thing called marriage and we see our role in it, and as we're overwhelmed by it, we run to you for grace. And we say, Lord, you must help. You must do it. We are not perfect. We are not good. We're not the husbands we should be. We're not the wives we should be. But Jesus Christ, the righteous, gave his life for us. It is because of Christ and his sacrifice that my marriage can be filled with joy. And in my giving of myself to another, I get to model something beautiful. And in my leadership of another, I get to model something beautiful. Christ in the church, his bride, who he purchased with his own life. You're so good. Help us. Help our marriages at Stonehouse, Lord in little moments of conflict, in little moments of struggle, and in big moments, God. Remind us of what marriage is, why it's here, and give us the grace to have strong, loving, healthy, God-glorifying marriages. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.